0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: Welcome to Season 19, Episode 10, powered by Huddle Analysis, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. And Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes, Looking to take their game and studies to the next level at juniorprospecthockeyleague.com. We're going to chat about the Detroit Red Wings prospects with their director of player development, Dan Cleary. Dan, thanks for coming on the show again. We'll always appreciate it.
2: You're welcome. Great. Great to be back. Uh, hi, Shane. Hey,
1: Brad. So let's uh, get into your 2023 draft because we didn't get a chance to chat with you after the draft. I like to always let you guys get through their development camps and sort of see what they're like and then get them into, you know, their regular scheduled leagues and kind of get them back into the swing of things before we talk to you. So initially thoughts on Nate Danielson, he was a player and I fully admit it. And Brad was the same way. We actually had a really difficult time trying to assess him in terms of what his projection was, was going to be like his ceiling, his floor. Uh, We both debated about it quite a bit. We thought, definitely he's a first round pick and, you know, we definitely thought he was going to play in the NHL, but where he was going to slot was a, was a challenge for both of us. So uh, we would appreciate any insight from you guys kind of like defining what you guys think he is and what your thoughts on him as a player.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Nate, very reserved uh, person, personality, uh, obviously really mature as well, uh, both on and off the ice. I think, uh, you know, for me, the first time seeing Nate was in development camp. So I got to see how he moved, how he handled the puck, how he, you know, surveyed the ice and and things like that. Um, And then I uh, was able to get out and see him um, out west uh, a few weeks ago. I, you know, he's playing in Brandon, obviously a team that's, you know, uh, they're battling. They're battling and he's an important piece. He's their captain. Um, But I think Nate, Nate, uh, you know, he had a great training camp for us as well. You know, he really played well for Detroit. Uh, you know obviously we sent him back to Brandon to have a good junior season and get ready to turn pro here next year. Um, I really like his game he's got no cheat in his game that's one thing I like you know he's always uh, defensively very responsible and and he's hard to play against. Uh, he, you know he's he's always he's always, he's always in someone's uh, pocket someone's back pocket or you know he's got good skill he, he does a lot of small things out there unless you're really paying attention uh, his, his small area skill is, is strong. Um, got high, high ceiling and high hopes for Nate.
3: Uh, Dan, when you when you look at him and would you characterize him as a versatile or that you can slot yep. on the wing and center, or how how would you characterize his game?
2: Well, he's a center, but you know, he's so smart and and tricky and cagey, uh, really, really good hockey sense. Uh, you know, if he had to play wing, he could, you know, no problem to adapt the wing, but I can see him being being a really good center playing both special teams, uh, he's a guy that, he, you know, I really, really, truly believe that he's going. To, he's a leader. Uh, he's, he's a quiet, uh, you know, and he, and he shows you uh, how he leads. Um, but he's, you know, as you get to know him, he starts to open up a little more and um, really like Nate.
1: I like, I appreciate the, the comments you made about him in terms of he's hard to play against because sometimes that get misconstrued in many ways where you think, oh, he's a banger and a crasher. And that doesn't necessarily define why a player is really hard to play against. If you have somebody who is constantly taking away your time and space, has their stick on you a lot, gets in on your hands, is always in your hip pocket, is relentless in a back check, uh, battles hard for pucks and 50-50 battles, and doesn't cheat. Like you mentioned, that's a player that I define is hard to play against. And I thought his floor was really high. So I'm like, okay, this kid's going to play. And my thoughts were, okay, my, my, the difficulty I had was, okay, what's a ceiling, where does he play in a lineup? Is he a second line NHL player? Can he produce that level of offense consistently be on a second unit power play, or is he going to be like a great number three? And that's where I had a challenge in terms of where to put him on my list.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's probably a fair challenge. And, you know, um, after seeing Nate play and, you know, how he moves and handles the puck, I mean, for me, I'm with you in terms of hard to play against. You know, they're, they're guys that take away time and space. Uh, you know, you just feel like you got – you're just smothered out there. And he's a smothering centerman uh, with skill, with skill and good sense. Um, his ceiling, I don't really know what his ceiling is going to be, if it's second line or if it's whatever it may be. But I certainly know that he's going to be a, a really good NHL pro. Um, just, just the way he carries himself, the way he, uh, goes about approaching the game, his professionalism, he's, you know, he's really, really mature kid, um, takes it serious, takes a lot of pride in it. And he takes a lot of pride in, in that side of the game that a lot of young players, especially, you know, these, you know, kids that are junior, they're first round talents. And, you know, sometimes the defensive side, the face-offs, the corner battles, the back checking, the being in the right spot defensively. You know, you can see some cheat in a lot of these players' games at that level. And then as they get to the pro level, they, you know, figure it out real fast that the coach is not going to accept that type of play, so they have to adapt. But he certainly uh, he brings it at the junior level. Um, you just know he's going to bring it, you know, at the next level. So, um, yeah, like Nate, I uh, really do, I have to say. Let's talk about Axel sandin Pelica
1: as a young defenseman. And you guys are very fortunate because you have Nick Cronwell over there as well, and who can be a really great mentor for for him. And I remember talking to Jim Neal and when when Nick was drafted, he was like five eleven, 165 pounds. Like he wasn't a big, big kid, but you know, that patience and let him grow and he turned into a you know an excellent NHL defenseman. Talk about, you know, pelica in that respect, and then how much how much value you have in your staff having Nick around to help defensemen like that?
2: You know, it's funny. We, me and Nick just had, um, video calls with all these kids yesterday, and the day before, uh, invaluable Nick Cromwell and, and Nick Lichstrom. Uh, you know, he's over there. He watches talks to them. Um, me and Nick just went to saw, uh, went, went to watch Axe play, uh, in Scleftia Um, and he, you know, he's 18 years old, uh, playing in the SHL as a regular on a good team with good defense, playing power play, uh, He's, he's a really, really smart player, really smart. Um, And he, and he's, he's in, he's in terrific shape. Um, You know, when, when Kroner talks to these D he talks about when he was young and you're right, he was, he was 165, couldn't put on any weight. And then finally, like he just sprouted, he just was able, you know, but, but Nick was very, very hardworking, very diligent in, in what he had to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Axel's a really uh, smart, calm, poised player. Um, when you watch him out there, his engine he feel like he's got a motor that can go uh well past you know into the into the mid one minute shifts and when he does get it most people would you know want to get rid of that puck he has that ability to uh, calm himself down and make a play to get out of trouble and he's certainly he's been been excellent uh, and I expect him to play a big role over there in Gothberg world Juniors
3: and I feel like um with Iserman, one thing that you noticed with him when he was um Drafting, developing uh, talent as the GM in, in uh, Tempest system, now in Detroit system, is uh, loves a lot of larger defensemen, a lot of range, they're hard to play against. I remember uh, he talked about when he was a player, he always found it more difficult to go up against larger, fast-skating range of defensemen, and that you have more insider in your system. And uh, Wallander and um, Simon Evanson and Justin Hull was brought in, Jeff Petrie, these are massive defensemen. And you bring in Ghost Spare, and now I feel like Axel Sanapelica falls more into that smaller defenseman mix. I feel like uh, everybody, including myself, to be honest, talks about the advantages of large defensemen. Can you talk about, from a development perspective, some of the advantages of, of a smaller defenseman and what he brings? Because one thing I noticed was he's so good on his edges, and he could utilize those at a higher rate because he had a lower center of gravity at the line. That's allowing him to get his shot off through traffic in the offensive zone at a higher rate. I feel like that's helping... And lead to higher goal scoring rates. Do you feel that's fair? And and how, do you just want to talk about maybe some of the advantages of, of just being smaller on the ice?
2: Yeah, I think uh, Axe is not that small. Um, you know, I stood next to him after the game. Um, you know, I'm, I'm six feet and a half. I would say he's just, maybe a, he's a six foot defenseman. He's got uh, real big hands. Uh, he's in good shape. Like he's got a good, you know, steady frame to him. That's only going to get stronger. In terms of his ability to move and his edges and being a smaller guy, um, smaller, I guess you could say, uh, he's completely fine. You know, with his smarts, he's able to defend. He's got good strength that he can defend. But, you know, his brain and his skill is what allows him to be a difference maker. You know, he's he's able to play at that SHL level at 18 years old and control games. And, you know, he controls lanes. He's got a real good uh, feel for time and space. He knows, uh, like when his when his forwards get the puck, they have time. And that's the true sign of, of a defenseman that really is smart and sees the game well. You know, it's very fortunate to play with a lot of these defensemen in my career that when you got the puck, you knew, oh, guy, okay, you have time. And you don't realize it maybe <laughs> until a little bit later. But um, Axis is a really, really smart player. And he's got good skill, good hands, good poise. Uh, and he's competitive, you know, he knows that he's not, you know, six foot four and, and with, with that length uh, that maybe a guy like, uh, like Mo has or Simon Evanson, you know, William Wallner, these are long defenders that can move well and they're able to use their length and their skating ability to close gaps much quicker. But Axel, you know, for him being, you know, a few inches shorter, he just sets a gap earlier. He's so smart. He's able to read and, and take away time and space and, um, I have no, no concerns about Axel and his path, but certainly, you know, patience is going to be very, very important. Obviously, Steve, uh, you know, values development of patience and our young players. So um, no concerns there.
1: We're going to take a short break on hockey prospect radio, but we'll be
2: back right after
1: these messages.
4: Every play, every stat, every breakdown on their own, they're essential, but altogether they're undeniable
0: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back and powered by Huddle Analysis, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're speaking with Dan Cleary, Director of Player Development for the Detroit Red Wings. Now, let's chat about Trey Augustine. Now, I don't make any bones about it. I'm not a goalie scout. I was a defenseman. Basically, I just got in the way and screened them and occasionally blocked shots. So when I look at a goaltender, i really just looking at how they handle adversity. When bad things happen to them, how do they react afterwards? And then I leave the rest of the technical stuff to Brad. So just from your perspective, Dan, and talking to your, to the rest of the guys that are you know, goalie scouts and in player development and goalies, Thoughts on him as a player because I like the fact he went from the program to Michigan State, where he's going to face a lot more rubber.
2: Yeah, I just saw uh Trey play uh, against Wisconsin, it was a, a big weekend at MSU. Obviously, I know uh Knighty, their head coach, uh, real well. And you know, uh, Trey played, Trey played excellent, um, you know. And and he's had he's had a he's had a really good season at, at Michigan State. He's given gives them a chance to to win and compete every night. Uh one thing I like about Trey is his demeanor. His demeanor is really calm, poised. Uh that's how he is off the ice, uh, quiet, hardworking, and and on the ice. Uh you know, cause sometimes when you talk to a kid, you see a kid, you can really tell uh what type of player he is, you know, based on your conversation with him and his mannerisms and how he interacts. And uh Trey reserved and calm and, and that's how he is on the ice you know he's he's got good rebound control which got better as the season's gone along you know they face a lot of rubber there at michigan state um you know he gets a lot of pucks uh plays every weekend um and he's he's a really good prospect uh phil O'Sara, goaltending coach uh spends a lot of time with them works with them um yeah he does, does a good job uh you know i really think trey is a bright future
3: uh, when you look at this physical development how how have you found him from from the off season, uh, what type of strength and conditioning program do you have? I, I bring that up specifically because be honest, normally I would focus on more technical aspects, which like with Trey, but Trey is already so technically gifted for his age categories. I um, just touch on the physical aspects. Well, his, of You
2: know, his, in terms of his, you know, he is, he is, you're right. Technically he's, he's real sound and, and he's got the fundamentals down, you know, in terms of positioning movement, uh, being quiet, you know, in the crease. I think, I think Trey, you know, these kids are young, you know and, and I know, and I know personally and firsthand that, you know, Will over at Michigan State does a terrific job in, in the office and their whole setup there. I don't know if you ever, guys have ever been there, but Michigan State's got an incredible gym, incredible setup, very individualized programs. Will does a terrific job, Trey's in great hands there. And you just got to be, you know, just got to be patient and let the kid grow into his body, get stronger as he gets older, as he goes through the season. You know, in college they got, you know, they play on the weekends. Then they got you know an off day. And then they got a couple of really good work days. So there, there's time to build that strength in, whether it's through his lower body and, and his upper body. But you know he looks uh, he looks good to me. He looks good to me. He looks uh, he looked good to me in the summer. He looks good to me um, two weeks ago. I'll see him uh, next week, and I expect him to play well.
1: I want to ask you about Andrew Gibson, and I like it's interesting when. We talked about about the draft, and obviously some people were a little surprised about taking Pelican, but they really—you sh- guys—shouldn't have been, because you have a lot of bigger defensemen. But you have to be able to complement those players, and I think Andrew Gibson is a potential complementary defensive when you look at the kind of guy who can insulate a more offensive guy, but still makes a really smart first pass, because the offensive guys don't want to play with somebody. It doesn't matter how good they are defensively. You got to get the puck to me clean and when I'm in movement and I think Andrew has that capability and it kind of gets I think it gets overshadowed because he's six three and over 200 pounds already
2: you know uh saw Gibby G- Gibby is a, a really like uh, Gibby he's got a great personality you know um uh, you know he's local he's able to come in and, and get his training this summer and skate skate with the guys you know obviously playing uh, up in the Sioux and and they got a pretty good team they're you know they got off to a great start this year and you know, offensively, he got off to a good start, but I, I really think you know with Gibby, he skates well and he's a competitor, um, and he's and he's uh, he's someone that his teammates really like. I know his coach really likes him. You know, I, I think right now uh, for Gibby, it's it's all about just managing his his touch on the puck and not trying to do too much with it. You know, because at times he because he's he can he can shoot it, he can skate, he's he wants to get up in the rush, he's competitive. Um, but I, I like Gibby. I like his size. I like his ability to skate. I like his ability, you know, to defend. Um, like you said, you know, in terms of complementary, you know, he's I think he's probably six two, six two and a bit. Um, he's got a good frame to him, and he, and he you know, being another young guy, um, he's he's got uh, he's got good potential. Uh, really good.
3: I, I felt last year with with Gibson, the, one of the things that. Uh, was more difficult to evaluate just, just where he was with his puck retrieval rates and, and stretch playmaking. Do you feel that he is developing in those areas from what you've seen this season? Yeah, like he goes back for pucks.
2: Well, I, you know, like anything, there's always going to be some areas. Um, for me, the the area I want to focus on the, mo- the most with with Gibby would be, you know, when he gets it, move it, G- get it and, and, and get it going north. Um, but if there's a time to skate it, skate it. Just don't try to do too much through the middle of the ice. That's where, you know, things can get out of hand. But once he gets into the offensive zone, you know, he's he's got good sense to read off off his forwards in terms of cutting down off the blue line. He, you know, he's got a good shot, like I alluded to earlier. He can, he can shoot a one-timer. Um, you know, but all these young D, you know, there's always, um, you know, they feel like they got to do a little bit more than maybe than they should. But that just takes some experience and time to figure out on their own. And, and he's a smart guy. Talking with our coach up next to, you know, uh, maybe about a week ago, he was telling me that, you know, Gibby has probably the best analytical numbers defending of maybe one of the, of all the D in the OHL. So he's doing a good job. Uh, they have a good team. He's competitive and he's, he's a big part of that. How
1: much is that, you think, in terms of complimentary, that you know, he's a guy that can insulate a lot because of his, he's very consistent in terms of, just taking away time and space and he's such a good skater and he's got range that you just, that's annoying for any kind of winger coming down. Cause like, especially the skilled guys.
2: Yeah. Listen, you know, Nick Listrom was a hard defenseman to play against, you know, but he didn't, he didn't like make you leave the game with bruises and, and cuts and, and, you know, agony. He was more just a frustration part. And, but with Gibby, Gibby with his ability to move and his feet and his skating and his, and he's physical though. Gibby is a physical player and he'll, and he'll be on you. Um, and I think he's, you know, the one thing, like all these young D, they just got to, you know, they're going to learn gap control. They're going to learn, you know, when to set it and and when to, you know, the surf across and things like that. But as long as Gibby continues to be physical and be hard and, and uses, uses ability, God-given ability to skate and close gaps, he can be a real complimentary right shot team man that can play over there and, and be a steady hand.
1: Well, that's, you look around the league, every time trade deadline comes or free agency comes, what do they need? You want a big defenseman who's mobile and is a right-handed shot. So, you know, I think sometimes the, everybody gets all happy and excited about the numbers and that's nice, but it's also junior hockey too. That stuff can get inflated and you really have to like dig into to those kind of defensemen because at the end of the day, they're just so, so valuable from long-term, long-term standpoint. Dan, I want to thank you for coming on the show once again. Really appreciate great insight on your prospects. Safe travels out there and look forward to seeing you at the rink.
2: Thank you very much, guys. Great to be on.
1: That's Dan Cleary, Director of Player Development for the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, Brad and I are going to take a short break. Uh, we'll come back right after these important messages.
4: Every play, every stat, every breakdown. On their own, they're essential. But all together, they're undeniable.
0: Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. It's Hockey Prospect Radio
1: brought to you by Fractal Hockey Consulting. Through an integrated series of best business practices, they design solutions for hockey operations and hockey business operations. We're continuing to talk about the USHL and the Fall Classic that recently completed last weekend. Uh, We're now happy to bring on Ian Gentile, VP of Hockey Operations, newly named. So exciting times for you, Ian, and thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it.
8: Yeah, thanks Shane. I was happy to do it. Uh you're right. I've only been here uh since April. It feels like a lifetime, but uh many years in the game. Uh this is a league I know very well. I live in the heart of the footprint, so uh just felt like a great fit.
1: Yeah, how how exciting was it for you? Like obviously you were with the Chicago Blackhawks for Thirteen years, went to USA Football for almost two years, and then right back into the USHL, which is an area you love. And you have your background, uh, you know, from with Chicago Blackhawks is really focused on player development. So how how intriguing was it for you to be able to have a department that you could oversee and be able to like? So in many cases, take the handcuffs off and really begin to look at it from a holistic standpoint, but also give the league and its membered clubs an opportunity to evolve and take best practices across the world in different sports or in different industries and be able to try to apply that practically.
8: Well, you're on it like that. That that was exactly the thought. Um, so seven of those 13 years with the Blackhawks were spent in player development and um, Credit to Stan Bowman and, and that group and their forward thinking. We were sort of the first team to adopt a, a, a multi-person, multi-disciplinary player development approach, which every team has now. But, I, you know, I think the numbers probably bear it out that we were we were very, very early adopters, if not the first to do that. So, you know, I'd like to think that I was at the, the, the bleeding edge of player development in hockey, um, strength and conditioning, nutrition, mental performance, on-ice skills building sort of holistic plans for athletes that that's where I made my living. Um, we had success doing it and, and really enjoyed and, and and grew those efforts. Then you have this completely different opportunity to get to the Olympic space um, and oversee a, a, an entire high performance program, build that from, from the ground floor um, as, as that USA football aspires to be a full blown Olympic program and, and write the entire high performance plan, what a cool and unexpected uh, professional challenge that was bringing my background into a new sport um, and, and, and building that out. Um, unofficially uh, it's looking pretty good for USA football getting in the Olympics. So you, you take some pride in that. I think professionally it was a very fun thing to be a part of, which gets you here to to today in the USHL, you know, hockey is my love. Hockey is my, my profession. Uh, I, I think I, w- I was destined and meant to be back in hockey and, and the USHL obviously, a league I know really well. And exactly to your point, let's give back to, to the, to, 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 the game and to junior hockey and, and, and lead with that player development hat for what it's worth um, teams, member clubs, you know, I've spent a lot of time in this space. Maybe we can really advance the league and do some really innovative player development things. You know, I, I think that was probably part of the fit, the synergistic fit. And then to your point, you're going to really expand and grow in a lot of other areas too. So, so bringing um, my personal background to, to the USHL, sure, but I was equal parts excited about getting involved on uh, whether it's player safety uh, rules and regulations, um, player procurement issues, you know, uh, a given day, I could be speaking with Bauer, uh, the NHL, a team owner, all within the same hour, right? So it's like you, you wear a lot of different hats and uh, it just felt like a great fit. Ian, from your
1: perspective, when you're looking at it, say from a player development department uh, or, you know, position, and I find this area really fascinating, Um, how, how much do you think you can be able to help the member clubs in terms of build, all the things that you learned from the NHL and trials and tribulations and what you did, obviously USA football and be able to help You know, junior teams advance their player development because they have limited budgets, they have limited personnel, but if they have somebody at the league level, helping build out processes and best practices and, you know, be able to take all the information from research from academia that's used in labs and all your connections and sort of bring that information and then try to integrate it into a potential program that they can just adopt and it becomes turnkey for them. Now, obviously that's not going to happen right away, but for them, like how exciting is that for you to take on a a project like that? And then the benefits to, you know, each USA, you know, USHL team, because if it can advance their player development, that radically helps the player recruitment process.
8: Sure. And you're, and you're, you're, you're being very uh, flattering, but you know, I, first things first is this league existed long before Ian ever got here. Um, and, and there's excellent player developing happening in this league. We we've placed the most players in, in the, the NHL draft out of junior hockey um, since 2012. Uh, and we've paced all junior hockey for seven years in a row with, with the most NHL draft picks. Obviously I've only been here since April. So they're developing players and they're doing something right. So, so I want to give credit to, the incredible hockey men that, you know, and women that that are in this league in our member clubs, they're they're committed to player development. They're committed to the college tracking model. So I want to make sure I give credit to all the, the, you know, the great hockey people that have been here before me in my own small way. To your point, what I hope to bring is, well, gang, here, here's some of the things we were doing literally at the bleeding edge in the NHL. Can, is there a scalable version for junior hockey to your point? I learned very quickly. I don't have the budgets to which I've been accustomed. Right. So we, we need to retrofit that into a junior hockey model. A lot of the philosophies and principles still apply, but is there a scalable version of that in junior hockey? The, the good news is I, yes, I think there is. And then it's, well, let's try to find what that looks like. Equip our clubs with these options. Um, we've already had a lot of success as I sit here on, on October 2nd. um, I was able to make some really um, precise recommendations to our member clubs. With here's some groups I was working with at the NHL. Here's some offerings that you may want to consider. Here's some technology that we've worked with that that we've we've been able to get league wide pricing. So I'd like to think we we've we've actually moved the needle already. Um, but again, I, I don't want to mischaracterize it. That there's a lot of great hockey people. There's a model here that works. Could we help advance it? Um, that's, that's where the fun comes in. Yeah. It's, it's conversations
1: I've had with Shane Fukushima in the past when he was with Waterloo about some of those processes and to them, to them is like, God, there's a lot of things I like to do, but you know, we have some limitations and budget limitations of time. Um, and he goes, that's why we really, you know, we lean on each other. Yes, we're competitors, but the other teams, there is some, you know, collection of best practices shared amongst each other, but then you, if you have it at the league, Standpoint is just being able to take some of that research off their plate and having the networking to be able to, like, you know, give them potential options. Does it will this work for you guys? I think that's one of the things when I talked to to Shane about was, you know, that's great. Like, those are things that just save us so much time because it's like we're really moving from one day to another, we're trying to see, trying to see the macro position, but you know, we're
8: such a micro organization. It's always such a day-to-day operations. But what's cool, Shane, and and you know this from all the years in hockey is that cuts both ways too. Like we're able to be the testing ground for a lot of technologies that go up the chain. Right. Um, So for professional hockey and for NHL. So I've had some great conversations, NHL workshopping some things at our level um, that we can then, work upwards right it, it doesn't always have to be top down we we can workshop some things here um that that find their way moving upwards and again that that's a really fun and different thing, different and interesting challenge too right so um always looking to innovate right like just or just always looking to innovate whether we're taking some of those things that i was a part of in the nhl or conversely we're we're bringing some some interesting uh initiatives to bear here that find their way in professional hockey, you know, any way you slice it, that just makes, makes it fun. It it makes, it makes what you're doing that much more enjoyable and innovative and challenging.
1: You find that it's going to be an advantage, particularly for team for you look at, you know, teams, but also, you know, for the companies that are on the cutting edge of innovation that you can knock on their door. And I know you work with the NHL, but if you want to test out this before you get to the NHL, is there an opportunity to partner with the USHL and do that? And it's cost effective for you. And then they use you as the beta testing for their, Bingo. for their
8: technology. Yeah, you're on it. And, and, uh and you, again, you know, this from, from being in hockey as long as you've been the, the companies in at the NHL level and, and here, both uh, the products with which I've had the most success are the companies willing to bet on themselves. They're willing to go with that freemium model or that that pilot program. Um, the other commonality I've seen is the companies that say, okay, Shane, what is it that you're looking to do? What problem can I solve? Here's sort of what I offer, but what can I solve for you? Those companies that come to you with a ready-made solution, trying to, to hammer home a, a one-size-fits-all solution into a space... Oftentimes, those aren't the ones that work. It's it's the companies that say, okay, I'm hearing a problem. I think I'm uniquely equipped to help solve that. Let's do this together. Those are the ones that that you have meaningful partnerships.
1: Uh, uh, Absolutely.
8: We're going to take
1: a short break on Hockey Prospect. We come back. We'll continue talking with Ian right after these important messages.
4: Every play, every stat, every breakdown – On their own, they're essential, but altogether, they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat, a new advanced data platform that integrates with sports code and every Huddle product you rely on to create an all-in-one data powerhouse. Huddle Instat's advanced tagging and next-level stat reports help you develop your team, and its global film library helps you find the missing piece to get the most out of every second of film. Visit huddle.com backslash hpr to learn more.
0: prospect news and analysis this is hockey prospect radio with shane Malloy and brad allen
1: we're back and brought to you by fractal hockey consulting through an integrated series of best business practices they design solutions for hockey operations and hockey business operations continue to talk to in gentile vp of hockey operations for the ushl you know, I want to get your thoughts on you know the USHL Fall Classic, which I think is a is a really great way to start the season. It used to be preseason games, and I like really like the fact they pushed it into regular season games. I thought it was a really nice way to launch the season. But what I find really interesting is you know the combines around it, and then the other youth tournaments around it, allowing. You know, the member clubs to see these younger kids get a beat on them early, but for then the kids to have an opportunity to see what the USHL is all about and be able to ha- have people like you talk to them, but then also to witness and watch the USHL live. Because I've talked to parents before, oh, my high school kid, he could play here. And then they went and see a game live and they're like, wow, like this hockey is really exceptionally good. So talk about the ancillary benefits of that from the USHL Fall Classic.
8: The fall classic is, is our, is our hallmark event. And rightfully so. I mean, it's ironic that we, we, we start our season with it, but um, what a wonderful event where we're sort of the the center of the hockey universe for four or five days, Uh, a really great partnership with the NHL. um, And it provides such a tangible value to the NHL too. Every club is represented and they have like three or four, in some cases, five scouts present. Um, In my conversations with Dan Marr and central scouting, They just place such an emphasis on this event because where else are you going to get all 16 teams in one location playing elite hockey? You have another hundred some um, college and division one coaches. You put that all together and and you really are the center of the hockey universe Um, in a great, again, just a a hockey wild uh, city in Pittsburgh and, and just the event is it's, 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 it's a wonderful event at the USHL level that serves sort of a unique and valuable purpose plus that whole other side that you talked about the youth side. So um, what Frank Butler does and, and what our player development staff does on the youth side, again, critically important, getting the, the, the best, uh, you know, AAA programs in the country all together in one city. It's not, it's not coincidence. Uh, and we have it at the exact same time. as as the USHL is playing so that these athletes get a chance to come and watch the USHL so that these parents get a chance to come and watch the USHL. We're very, very proud of our product. And and the numbers seem to bear that out. Um, The recent athletic article uh, seems to bear that out. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly important and well-placed development league when these young athletes come and see our product, I think they're blown away. Um, What a fast league, what an athletic league, and then you put those NHL draft numbers behind it, the college placement numbers behind it. Um, and and you, you wrap that all up into the fall classic, just being a, a really uniquely valuable event.
1: Yeah. I think it radically changed when you went to Pittsburgh and had a partner in a facility. That's great. Like, I love the facility. And we'd stay at the hotel right across the street. So yeah. we just like right. walk right back and forth. It's really convenient. Um you know, Pittsburgh Penguins have uh, the practice facility. It's double double ice surface, which is great. And then they have the restaurants and everything in between. I think it just makes it a, much, a super convenient because it's centrally located too as well. So it's close for all the member clubs to get to, but then for all the NHL and the, you know, the college coaches to get in there. Um, You know, there are other, you know, areas that are close by that could probably do just as great as a job, but, and I'm always an advocate of like maybe moving around a little bit, but it's hard to say no to Pittsburgh because they've done such a great job there.
8: Well, that's it. It, It's been a natural fit. Uh, The Penguins are terrific partners. That facility is exceptional. And then, and then you, you factor in all the youth rinks that are in such a close proximity. Uh, It's been home, you know, for this event for a while now. And uh, it's just, it's a great fit.
1: Like how, how valuable it is to the USHL that, you know, you and other staff members can have these conversations, big conversations with parents and with the youth players, you know, before their games and at, and at tournaments during this event so that they understand exactly what you, they have potential in the USHL, whether it's a fit for them personally and their families and have the opportunity to speak with, you know, USHL general managers and USHL coaches, you know, directly about, you know, what would it be like for me to go there the parents asking questions? What is it like? What's the building like? What's the schools like, you know, what's the emphasis on education, you know, how valuable is that as a recruiting tool for, you know, having these youth tournaments around.
8: One of the biggest we've got, right. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't, it's one of the biggest recruiting tools we have, um, You have some of the best players in the country right in that perfect age range, and they have a chance to watch all 16 teams, potentially meet with all 16 teams, meet with the league, watch the product. You sort of can't replicate that. Like You you put that all together. It's it's such a rare and valuable opportunity um, for the athlete, too, that, um, okay, I'm a pretty good player at this level. Uh, We're a pretty competitive program. What does the next level look like? And what we're finding, what I'm finding uh, with the more time I spend here in junior hockey is that NHL players, professional players, players and and athletes that have had long careers will often tell you the most difficult jump they've ever made was the jump to the USHL. Like, wow, like that blew me away. And Shane, maybe you knew that or, or were a part of that intuitively. But for me, spending as much time in the NHL as I did, I was shocked to learn that. So great. So now we have some intel. Let's use that. How can we help athletes with this transition and actually propel them? So then that's, again, where sort of the player development challenge comes in. But I was really kind of shocked to learn that, but but maybe I shouldn't have been.
1: Well, how much do you think that is from you put your player development hat on is about forming habits? Like For the young players to understand, there are certain habits and behaviors that you're going to have to start to build so that you have the consistency and the self-discipline to be able to get where you want to go. And you can't start this at 19 or 20. You need to start it a little bit younger so that it be- it gets to the point where it becomes autotelic. Like You're not even thinking about it. This is what I do every day. Um, and then it compounds itself; it builds upon itself every day for that athlete when they get from like fourteen to fifteen to sixteen, and they're jumping
8: into the USHL. Habits, yes, but how about just the human element too? Like they're young athletes; these right. are really young the kids. Athletes who may, they, yeah, you know, and maybe they've 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 never billeted before; they they've never uh, lived outside of mom and dad before, or, or maybe it's their first time ever living away from home. They've been the biggest, fastest, strongest every team they've ever played for. And that's about to come to a crashing halt too. So you put that all together and there's, there's just, there's a lot we can do to help. And to your point, it's yes, there's the habits and we can teach you how to take that next step, um, train on the ice, what you should be doing off the ice. But I think there's a lot of that human component that we can help too. that. Hey, look, we understand this. is The first time you've lived away from home, we understand you're stressed out trying to pick a college, um, thinking about the NHL, I think we can really help in those areas. So, so that's kind of this, some of the fun stuff I'm looking to unpack here in the coming coming months. Almost like having
1: a little tester for the lot of young athletes, is saying, okay, this is a potential billet family. You get to stay with them, say for a week, and see what that's like. And this
3: is well, like you
8: a- and I. Yeah, you and I have talked about workshopping. It is there's a lot we can test at this level, and and I think there's probably even more we can do in the orientation department. Which is, hey, we've heard historically this is one of the most difficult developmental jumps you're going to make. Let's help you, like let's be an ally in that with you instead of just throwing you out to see and, and seeing who's going to sink and, or swim. Right. I think we I think we can help athletes.
1: Right. And in terms of that educational process, because they're leaving their high school, they're leaving their friends. You know, how do we help supplement the educational component so it's less stressful for them and helping them understand how they learn? Because there's going to be, a, sometimes there's a little bit more remote learning. And that's not always, some people don't handle that very well. So how do we help supplement that as well in that process? Because we kind of forget their kids they are away from home and there's a lot of stresses on them and then they got school. It's not like a pro athlete. My job is just to go, you know, prepare myself and get ready.
8: Yeah, and it's it's a passion area of mine that mental performance and mental resilience space too. You're never too young, um. You're you're never too young to to start working on your mental performance, your mental health, your mental resilience. Remote learning um, threw a grenade into all of this for all of us, right? We sort of take you and I are sitting here talking remotely now. Even a few years ago, this was unheard of, right? So, um, understanding the challenges of remote learning, understand the challenges of just being a young person today. Um, There's so much we can do to help you from that mental performance standpoint. Hopefully in some small way, I can, I can add value there too. Well, Ian, I want to thank you very much for coming on your show. We really appreciate the
1: insight and we look forward to talking to you throughout the year.
8: Yeah. Anytime. Thanks so much, Ian.
1: Ian Gentile, we're going to take a short break. We'll continue to talk about the USHL and the USHL fall classic right after these important messages.
4: Every play, every stat, Every breakdown. On their own, they're essential. But altogether, they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat, a new advanced data platform that integrates with sports code and every Huddle product you rely on to create an all-in-one data powerhouse. Huddle Instat's advanced tagging and next-level stat reports help you develop your team. And its global film library helps you find the missing piece to get the most out of every second of film. Visit huddle.com backslash HPR to learn more.
0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM, NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: This is Hour 2 in Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at juniorprospecthockeyleague.com. Brad and I are going to talk about the 2024 draft. We haven't really actually talked about it at all so far. So, you know, we managed to hold off for, you know, 10 weeks before we got into it because I just, I think, you know, obviously things need time to breathe, Brad, and you have to see things develop. And I don't know how many times i probably like, you know, nagged at you about, you know, you know, having conclusions about a draft so early um, but themes develop, and I don't like doing data analysis while I'm, you know, still in data collection mode. But overall impressions of what you've seen, obviously from the summer, and you know, through you know the first few months of the hockey season, September, October, November, now into sort of mid, early, early December.
3: Yeah, just to just to share your point, like I I feel, you know, from what I've seen, read, heard people have talked to, a lot of people consider this more of a weaker class when when it was initially getting up and running. I think part of that has to do with with so many scouts being in the CHL, and specifically, um, this is a down year for the OHL. And I feel like we're saying this every year now, but it's a down year again for the Q. So it, it, when the, the OHL is looking weaker, and when the program is looking weaker, and when the Q is super weak, that's a, a starting point of, of what might be worst class. Um Sweden is really weak this year, which is super rare. Uh I'm trying to get used to that still. I'm still I'm still in denial phase and, and where we, I'm, and i we keep will looking.
1: see it's early, right? It, you know it what is happens. Early. Remember, it is when, very early. remember when remember when Huberto was drafted? Like early part of the season, no one projected him to be the third overall pick. Absolutely. So that's why I always year. temper that temper those you know suggestions or thoughts. Oh, this is the way it's gonna be early because that's what comes back and bites in the ass.
3: Yeah. I mean, just uh, to bolster that statement, I mean, Kel McCarr, right? we, we had Kel McCarr, right? Yeah. Super, super aggressive. People thought top five when we had him ranked was crazy. And now look at that in hindsight, right? Uh, uh, Miro Hiskinen, when he was five eleven and a buck 60, we had him super highly ranked. And, and, you know, a lot, a lot of people thought that looked really strange because at that time, earlier in the, in his draft year, uh, he was more of an unknown commodity. Look where he finishes, right? In, in his draft season, the U-18s, then Dallas takes him super high and, and it's a phenomenal pick, right? So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's super early. Uh, and one thing that's really interesting about this class that that falls into that statement, I don't remember a class this young. There are so many early birthdays. The amount of August birthdays, September, uh, uh, the September fifteenth cutoff. The amount of kids who are just under that cutoff point. I've never seen anything like it, uh, and that honestly makes our job a lot harder. Well, because that also contributes projecting to further down.
1: That also contributes to the perception, which perceptions are dangerous, of it being a weak class because it, that could potentially could be seven, eight, or nine months difference in terms of development. That's huge. That's like watching a player in September and saying he's X and then nine months later when the play, you know, in May, after like the season's done, oh, he's a totally different player. You know, those things happen.
3: not only do they happen but this draft class specifically has a lot of these types of players that need time anyways so then you factor in the age on top of that and it's really leaving the the class in one of those states where i feel like as you patience. said there, there's a huge growth rate that could happen with some of these kids and yeah it needs and you need more patience as a result of that it, uh, you know if it, it's i agree yeah absolutely like if you look at like defensemen like zane perrick right brilliant talent he needs a lot of time to cook here. He needs time to develop uh his defensive his defensive game. Uh, um defense, another defender well, comes to mind. Not,
1: yeah, he's not coming into the NHL next year. So what are you like? What are you worried about? You know, he's like probably four years away. You know, yes, including yeah. this season. So
3: maybe well, even like, longer. Yeah, it, it, so
1: what are you worried about? Like, you know what I mean? Oh, he's not ready. Of course he's not ready. But <laughs> he's 17 years old. Simmer down. You know, I just yeah. It's yeah. just some um, of those those sediments kind of like makes me roll roll my eyes sometimes
3: <laughs> for sure and, and then there's other players in this draft that are super toolsy but then very raw uh, so Polkin polkanen six six finished defender who's who's had a, a real jump in his in his curve uh this season uh he, he's an overager but he'll be drafted i guarantee it uh, adam Jekko, who's a uh, um there's, every year I always have the the, the coat in the black book for one player that stands out as, as a just basically the bizarre player of the class so that, like Maxim Groshev was that for me in Tampa. I liked him. I thought it was a great pick by Tampa, but he was a very bizarre player how he operated. Julian Lutz was another player I liked there. Arizona took he was is very strange he he thick he he fits the life as a box of chocolates quote. you just you're not you know what you're getting when when you're evaluating him in in, in during his draft season essentially uh, in some ways. Uh, Adam Jekko is that player this season, right? And he's another player. You give him time. So uh, there, there's Dean Laterno, a high schooler who's 6'6 and has a lot of talent, but he's very raw and, and still in high school. So it's, some of these kids are very hard to project right now, uh, but are very intriguing at the same time. Uh, one thing I'll say, though, that I think I can get away with saying right now, since our first list is out, I, I've uh, got my top 60 and I, I can stare at it now, is that this class already doesn't look um, weak. I'll say it already looks at least average. And the top end, I think, is a, is very good. You look at the top 12 to 13 picks in this class. It's, I really like this class. Especially I, I think...
1: if there's a lot of D that charge a little bit late. Because if you look at history, defensemen who can play a top three role are far more valuable than a scoring uh, a winger on a second line. So that may actually increase the value if that happens, as we you know we both discuss. Defensemen tend to late hard charge after Christmas, kind of get into the middle of January, and they start, you know, getting their legs underneath them and figuring things out more effectively. So that can end up happening too.
3: Absolutely, this class is uh, very different from last year's class in terms of uh, defensive uh, defensive ability. Essentially, there's way more defensive talent at the top end relative to last season. And it goes right through the depth too, and it's so. an
1: interesting mix too. Like there's there's an interesting mix of guys who are have are rangy and tall and have you know ability, and then there's a, a few smaller offensive defensemen, but then there's a you know a collection of more of those insulating defensive defensemen who can make a reasonably good first pass. So there's um there's variety in that defense grouping, and it could be yeah, and, and it could be like a really strong defensive class if you know, the development curve continues on its path. And that's why I'm always hesitant about tagging a defenseman early. I just don't do it because I've just been burned so many times in the past, in the past of, you know, you just got to let him cook. And the other interesting factor also we should probably mention is the Russian prospects. This potentially could be a really good year for Russians and a lot and more Russians being drafted at a higher clip in the first couple of rounds.
3: Yeah, so I I always tend to say that Russia always has a good class just to bother my my, my boss Mark Edwards, uh, but no, it's it is a deep class for Russia. It it really is. Um, not just uh for forwards and defensemen. This is one of the best Russian goalie classes I can remember as well. Um, that that's another thing that honestly kind of caught me off guard because, you know, as as a lot of you know, usually in hockey things are very cyclical. So you, you have a pretty strong class last year. I th- some people would call it really good. I I thought it was. Good, not great, uh, but you look at you look at the goaltending last year it was phenomenal. I thought it was the best class since 2012, where you had Connor Hellebeck, Andre Vasilevsky, uh, Linus Allmark, Eunice Corpusalo. Uh, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, th- this class, it's not, it doesn't have that that next level you know, Yurislaw, Vascov or Spencer Knight a type of goalie coming in, but the depth is phenomenal. And I didn't expect it. I really thought maybe, okay, this might be a down year because last year was so good, but that's not the case. Goaltending has been really exceptional this season.
1: Well, yeah, it is what it is. And you could have a collection of, and the industry has kind of slid this way a little bit in terms of one A's and one B's. And that may, because of there's so many hybrid goaltenders that the difference between being good and great is what's between their ears. And then that's, that is harder to measure in, in a lot of cases in that respect. So that's what I find really interesting too, about this potential draft class as well. And I just going to want, I'm just going to let it all play out. It was something I had had to learn the hard way. And, and a scout said to me once he goes, look like, don't want something to happen. Don't expect something to happen. Just watch and see what does happen and record it. And then just collect the data because if you start like, you know, imprinting yourself upon and and making opinions and, you know, you're just going to create more trouble for yourself when you get to the end of the year. So, and that's always problematic. And, you know, we're both been prone to making uh, a lot of mistakes because amateur scouting is hard, but we should take a short break on hockey prospect. we come back. We'll continue to talk about the 24 draft right after this.
4: Every play, every stat, Every breakdown. On their own, they're essential. But altogether, they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat, a new advanced data platform that integrates with sports code and every Huddle product you rely on to create an all-in-one data powerhouse. Huddle Instat's advanced tagging and next-level stat reports help you develop your team. And its global film library helps you find the missing piece to get the most out of every second of film. Visit huddle.com backslash hpr
5: to learn more.
0: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back on Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at Junior Prospect Hockey League.com. All right, Brad, let's talk about goalies for the 2024 draft. The area that I do not delve myself into really heavily in terms of the technical standpoint, I really just look at the mental side of it for goalies. And if I'm comfortable with that aspect, then I go and talk to the guys who are really strong, like you and other people that I know, uh, Jason Buchel, who are stronger in the technical aspect to help me understand that. So thoughts on this draft class and the potential of this goalie draft class for 2024?
3: Well, it's better than expected. Uh, just talked about it. Better than so expected. Far? I, so far, definitely better than expected. I, I actually don't remember being this impressed this early with almost any other class. This there's, you know, It's one of those situations where I already have 12 bonafide drafts uh, that I have ranked, and I have uh, That's a lot. six. It's a lot. And six of them are, are in the B, five are in the B range, and one is in the C plus range and could easily move up depending on how he does. So uh, it's, it's a very deep class, and uh, it's close to my heart because most of them are Russian, which uh, gives me a level of comfort, to be honest. I, I'm i not alone in this assessment. I've talked to NHL goalie scouts about this as well. Most of them absolutely agree with what I'm about to say, which is that you know, Russia is, is the best goaltending systems there are. Um, there's many reasons for that. One of the primary ones is that they're just much better at developing skating bases in young goalies. Uh, you you look at the best goalies in the NHL right now, Andre Vasilevsky, Igor Shosturkin, Ilya Sorokin, all Russian, all phenomenal skaters. Very good skating technique. I used say Saros would be the outlier there. He's finished, but he's he's right there with them. That's why he's so good. Skating is critical to position, and Russia is well ahead when it comes to that. I think that's one of the reasons they're so good at accelerating.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that um, in that respect. So, And that's something that we've noticed in North America. Not necessarily, I think it's more can- Canada than the states in that respect. And would you like you agree that there's been not saying that skating isn't developed and it isn't a focus, but for what well, for whatever reason the Russians are more advanced and I think sometimes the Swedes and and the Finns are too in that respect.
3: Yeah well the what's interesting with the CHL and the goaltending situation is is a lot of the better goalies uh more recently have been coming out of the WHL. Uh, but yeah. I know that most most scouts prefer a slower development path with goalies, including myself. I think Devin Levi is a very good case study here where, you know, second goalie ever to attempt to jump from college straight to the NHL and obviously hasn't gone to plan, which is not unexpected. And to be honest, not yeah. really any not, of anything to surprised. do with Devin Levi. It's just yeah, yeah it's not surprising. He's very young. Uh, as you mentioned, mental maturity, right? Massive components of the position and mental maturity needs time to develop. So... That's why so many goalie uh, uh, scouts, including myself, prefer a longer window, and that's what you get in Russia. It's what you get when you when you draft a kid from the USHL because he's going to go the college route. It gives him more time, right? Thatcher Demko, for instance, if he was in the OHL, would have, would have his development looked like it, it has now? He was an unorthodox goalie. He needed more development time because he wasn't as technically as adjusted as he needed to be. Once he hit the pro level, uh, but because he went college route instead, it, I think it really helped with his development. So there, there's definitely something to that in the case with Russia. Um, I'll, t- I'll talk about some of the top kids. So uh, I'll start off with Timofey Vinciv. So he's an overager. He's a plus one. He's 18 years of age. He plays in one of my favorite systems in Krasnaya. Uh, he didn't play last year. He only played like five games. I don't know why. So that's Thanks. that's I wish I knew more. I don't know if it, if it was due to injury or something else, uh, but basically what I'm saying this because I have to clean slate him. Didn't get to play last year. This for me is basically his initial draft season. Uh, he is the freak of this class. He is an incredible athlete. Uh, when you're talking about basically a dynamic goalie you know the dexterity, range of motion, fluidity, explosiveness, uh, coordination—it's all there. He's he's the best in this class at transferring between saves, and he's massive. He's six four. He's very wide. So just the the raw physical toolkit is incredibly intriguing. I put him a little bit further down in my B range because doesn't have I don't have as many viewings, and some of the viewings he's making some mental errors that the other goalies above him aren't making. So I, I want to give him a bit more time. Uh, but he's somebody I had no idea existed, and then uh, I found him because he led in a goal. <laughs> he led in a goal, and I was watching another player actually uh, on the opposite team, and I was like, "Wait, who's that goalie? That's a ridiculous transfer. Who who did that?" And that's where where he came from to me. Uh, the next goalie on my list I'll talk about in the B range from Russia is Pavel Moisevich, who I had ranked last season. Uh, I thought the last year's draft had like a, a very, very impressive top six, seven goalies. He was part of that, and he was my first C-range goalie. Uh, not many people knew about him. I had no idea if he would be drafted. He wasn't. I guarantee you he gets drafted this year. He's definitely put himself on the map. He plays in SKA's system. He uh, has accelerated his development curve. He plays up in the VHL in SKA Neva, which is their second-tier uh, team. And um, he was phenomenal there, and then he got called up to KHL, and that really helps to get gets me comfortable because now it's not theoretical of what he would look like when he gets basically "quote unquote" to the show over in Russia. So it, he's he's really really been impressive. His stylistically, he's something in between Akira Schmidt and Jesper Wallstedt, and I again emphasize stylistically. He's not as talented as Wallstead. Uh, arguably, you could say he's actually not as talented as Akira Schmidt either, but he's right below that, and he's very, very intriguing. He's much more of a, a technically sound, very cerebral, intelligent goalie, not nearly as athletically gifted as a Vince in terms of recovery rate. And that brings me to my uh, second-ranked B goalie. Now I'm hitting my top 32 range. I'm pretty aggressive with goalies. And that's Kirill Rubin, who's an AKM Tula system. He was called up to their main team the last three weeks, I believe, maybe month now. And uh he's been lights out. Again, six four. All these goalies are huge, by the way. I have no goalies this year in my top five six that are small. So every goalie is six four, six five on average. Uh so uh in Zerubin's case, he's very well-rounded, very athletically gifted. Uh, the big thing with him was his edge work needed some modifications, and I didn't love his overlap positioning, which was a trade I shared with Igor Gorov from last season that um, Chicago or uh, sorry uh, Calgary took in the sixth round. Um, I liked that pick at the time. I still do um, because overlap positions you can modify over time. So I feel like the the issues Ruben has you can you can rein in, and when he's reined in, and he has looked more reined in the last three four weeks. Uh, I I found he looked uh, phenomenal. Uh, so that's that's my uh, second-ranked B goalie. And the top goalie I have this class, who's just outside that A range, I really think he has a chance to get in there by the end of the season, is Mikhail Yagorov, who's in Omaha's system. And some of you might uh, be familiar with that system because Michael Hrabel, uh, who was drafted uh, yeah. by Arizona in the second round last year, is also from that system. So um, it's very interesting that they actually managed to acquire a Russian Ah uh, goalie and bring him over and transfer him to to uh, the states. That's rare, very rare feat. Uh, what what's fascinating about that for me is I'm dealing with the goalie who goes from the larger ice surface over over in Russia. Now I get to see his adaptation very quickly, and it's been almost seamless, which you never say when it yeah. comes to that position, because in russia, what what you're dealing with is low traffic and you're dealing with a lot lot of uh, a longer range shot volume. Right? it's and most of it's low to mid danger instead of high danger, and you're not not having to deal with post to post movement download movement post integration nearly the same degree. you don't have to look around traffic nearly the same degree and Yegorov has shown a seamless transition in all those areas, and that's one of the reasons I'm so comfortable with him, so I have him ranked aggressively he has everything. Phenomenal yeah. skating base, which we touched on, and extremely well rounded and looks like a bona fide NHL starter.
1: Yeah, yeah, we got a bet less than a minute left if you want to touch on somebody really quickly.
3: Sure. I'll, I'll I'll talk about the biggest goal in this class, and that's Marcus Gidloff. So he's he's one of the wild cards for me. Uh fortunate enough to know people that know him personally behind the scenes. So uh Apparently, the kid's a great kid, very mature off the ice. Uh, there's a ton of growth room, especially in this upper frame, which is very interesting because he's already very broad. So if I was to contrast him with Anaheim Ducks' second-round pick last year in Damian Clara, he's not as athletically gifted as Clara, but he's, yeah. he's bigger and uh, he's more consistent mentally. There's, there's much, he's, he's the starter in Lexin system and he's been lights out. So anytime you get a six, six starter, who's looking this good, this early, right. although he is one of the oldest goalies for the class, um, yeah. in, first year eligible goalies, I should say, um, yeah. he's, he's, he's looked, he's looked every part of a potential starter and I will be very surprised if he, if he even lasts to the fourth round and that's where I have him. So that's the Perfect. back part. So, yeah, that those are the top 6 and uh, it's it's those are not the only ones. There's a right. lot of really really intriguing goalies in this class.
1: We're going to take a short break on hockey prospect radio, but we'll be back right after this.
4: Every play, every stat, every breakdown on their own they're essential, but all together they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat
0: Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're back
1: and powered by InStat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now going to do our player development segment with Pat Malloy, player development coach. Pat, thanks for coming on the show. We always appreciate it.
9: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, as we go through our development topics uh, next in line is puck skills for the pro game handle versus carry and range so in this grouping, uh, where would you like to start first and give us a little background and understanding from a development perspective, what you see and then how you define that for players and then ultimately help them develop those skill sets.
9: Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll start this week on, on sort of, we'll touch on four things um, when we're breaking down puck skills with how they relate to the pro side of, of the game. Uh, we'll talk about puck posture, we'll talk of, of handling versus carrying, and, and we'll talk about backhand play. Um, so we'll, we'll jump right in. I mean, you know, leading off of in the first couple of segments that we've done regarding skating, we talked a lot about skating posture. Here, what, what we'll talk about is, is puck posture. So the idea of, of how do we create strength on a puck? Um, you know, a lot of things that players will get away with in junior hockey just won't fly at the National Hockey League level. And so creating strength on the puck is, is certainly an acquirable skill. And it starts with our, with our top hand elbow. It's really where do we have the puck in relation to our center of gravity and our mass So what I'll notice a lot of times is you'll get skilled players and their hands will get way off their body and lead the puck way out front. And of course, as we know, you know, pro defensemen are are real quick to to poke pucks away and end your possession. And so things that we want to start to do is, is, you know, from an evidence-based standpoint, show them here's where you are. And here's where we're looking to be, you know, great use of video in stats made that, you know, something really easy to, to find identifiable, identifiable examples for them. Um, But starting with the high top hand elbow to create leverage, you know, bringing the puck closer to your center of gravity. And what that does is it, it, you know, when you break it down for the player, it gives them the idea to understand the range and the range, meaning how close we can have a puck allows us to be a bit stronger on pucks, but the range meaning I can always extend my hands away if I need to be deceptive or to create space for myself. But if I lose a possession because just my base puck posture allows quick little poke checks to disrupt my possession, that's going to be something that we certainly want to make sure we're addressing right away.
3: Uh, You're mentioning a lot about range for defensemen, quick poke checks. One thing I've noticed over the last couple of seasons is an emphasis when it comes to the skills progression of a player, um, being able to utilize hands within the tripod of a defenseman so they can Mm -hmm. attack within the feet to be able to make sure that the length is taken away. Is that something that you focus on a tremendous amount with your client base currently?
9: Yeah. I I mean, one of the things we'll talk about and it sort of leads us into the, to the second thing that we'll touch on is the handle portion of handle versus carry. And, and really that'll come down to the, sort of the next progression. Once we've established, you know, strong posture with a puck is hand speed. And again, that'll come back to our top hand in terms of developing speed um, in movement of the puck, which allows for you know uh, evasiveness to be, you know, into small areas to create that little pocket of time to get a defender turned or opened up or pivoting uh, or, or stepping over and, and getting the puck sort of lost within their triangle, and, and a lot of that will come down to, to that hand speed. So, from a range perspective, you know, can I handle it close to my body, but do I have the range to be able to move it away from my body and still maintain, you know, a hand speed perspective? and in a, an escapability perspective based on that top hand range of motion and, and the speed that we develop while drilling that.
1: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network, radio powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're speaking with Pat Malloy, player development coach, talking about uh, some different topics every week. This week is puck skills for the pro game, handle versus carry range. Uh, Pat, sort of continue on with the next topic and give us some insight of how you evaluate it, break it down, then ultimately teach it to your
9: clientele. So leadness sort of from the handle to the carry perspective. Um, you know, when we're looking at the carrying versus handling handling, am I able to handle a puck and solve problems, meaning threat to possession? From a carrying perspective you know one of the things that we'll look at am i able to generate speed in carrying s- sequences so does the puck slow me down or am i someone that can accelerate or maintain my speed with the puck on my stick and one of the things we'll focus a lot on is something that i'll call skating in stride so my my ability to generate stride turnover that we've touched on in previous segments you know it isn't limited by the fact that i possess the puck and so things that we'll do is, is really start to implement the idea of, of the puck simply becomes um, along for the ride in a carrying sequence and, and, and making sure we're, we're, we're making the movements as efficient as we can make them um, in a less is more concept. So are we carrying them in such a way that they don't slow us down? They don't limit our movement from a left, right, east, west, north, south perspective. Um, are we still able to access pockets of ice? At pace of play. And so again, you know, w- when we talk about the idea of a player moving from junior to the National Hockey League level, pace certainly is something we hear a lot about, right? It's faster, everything's a little bit faster. And so from an efficiency standpoint, we want to make sure the puck's not costing you time. Um, because ultimately, we also know that if, if you're not able to do things at the pace of play, and you're not able to contribute with the puck, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to stick long term.
3: Uh, Pat, when you have a prospect that has a tremendous amount of speed, do you try to emphasize specific dekes that allow the player to basically windmill past his opponent, use his agility, sidestep them, and then explode into that open pocket when they slide the puck past the defense. Is it? Is there basically, if if a player is faster, do you try to specify specific dekes that allow them to use and ge- use and generate that speed and continue on in that one motion?
9: Um, kind of what I, I, I guess I, 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 more so speak to them about weaponizing their speed versus thinking about a specific deke. And so what we'll talk a lot about is the idea of, of forcing people into the movements that we want them to. And so weight shift is something, um, that, that really we, we touch on quite a lot and that. I, I think it's the most useful deception tool in hockey, um, getting people leaning the wrong way and the power of creating triggers is something I'll talk a lot about creating triggers in the defender and a trigger meaning if I can force them into a movement that they aren't trained to do don't want to do. Uh, and no, they shouldn't do, it's a trigger for me to, to continue to dictate the terms and what I'm trying to do. And so, for instance, getting lateral off the catch of a pass, for instance, might be a, a, an example of that. Um, a, a simple weight shift or a crossover one way with a slash move to the opposite way to open space for myself in that carrying sequence would would certainly qualify for, for an example of that. And then the last thing that, that you know, from The the first part of puck skills for the program that we'll talk about today is just, you know, your backhand play, your ability to to create space inside a coverage using your backhand, crossbody comfort, I'll call it. So, again, you know, understanding that range in terms of how we handle um, carry um occupy space with a puck is something that we'll talk a lot about and what you'll find is a lot of the things in the time and space afforded to you in junior just aren't there at the pro level so backhand play and the ability to you know create space inside coverage have comfort level that you know you don't have a lot of time and then stitch together hand speed range and, and ability to do things from a backhand perspective inside coverage and be comfortable across your body is something that we'll spend a lot of time on getting them away from what they're ultimately comfortable with all the time and creating new pathways for them to be comfortable in varying scenarios.
1: And how much of that is just uh, quickly, we have a minute left just breaking down some habits that you know are not going to be NHL transferable.
9: Yeah, I mean, everything that I'll do certainly starts with doing a technical and tactical skills assessment and a tactics assessment of how they use the skills that they have. So sort of the skills, details and habits of their game. So we'll look at video and then we'll identify these things are transferable and these things are are lower percentage details and habits within your game that aren't going to provide you any opportunity to succeed at the next level with any sort of frequency. That makes sense.
1: Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break on Hockey Prospect Radio.
4: Every play, every stat, every breakdown on their own, they're essential. But all together, they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat, a new advanced data platform that integrates with Sports Code and every Huddle product you rely on to create an all-in-one data powerhouse. Huddle Instat's advanced tagging and next-level stat reports help you develop your team, and its global film library helps you find the missing piece to get the most out of every second of film. Visit huddle.com hpr
5: to learn more.
7: Oh, lady, baby, I
0: get me Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen speaking
1: with Dr. Kevin Willis in our segment it's all mental he's a sports psychologist and mental coach as we continue through his book Grit Grind and Mind chapter 3 we're discussing perception in the subtopic we're discussing this one is examining motivations Dr. Willis this is an area that i'm also like extremely interested in not just from like from a personal standpoint but trying to evaluate somebody else's motivations particularly like in, you know, Brad and mine circumstance where these are not players that we see every day. They're not part of our communities. So we're having to dig deep into them and watch, you know, observe them, try to have, you know, we have conversations with them, just trying to dig up all these different, you know, little tidbits about this player to understand what their motivations are. And honestly, it's exceptionally difficult. Talk about, you know, from a clinical standpoint of what you do about how, you know, you help them examine their own personal motivations versus obviously what's going on around them, because that can sometimes impact how like what their motivations are.
10: Yeah. I think the motivation is, is huge. I call it drive, right? I think it's your drive to pursue this, this tough sport, right? Which, which anybody that's, it's, sort of experienced it, it is it is a long, hard, tough journey. And so if you don't, if you aren't motivated and, you know, I talk about passion, well, where, what is passion? How's that compared to motivation? Well, passion drives the motivation, but motivation drives the performance. It drives the activity, the behavior, right? The actions that you take to to achieve those things that you want. So, you know, simp- the, the simple um, sort of uh, Breakout of motivation is internal and external, right? The external is the dollar. The dollar is driving me to do this, or you know, I want to, I want to, I want to be the best player on the team. So I, I'm comparing myself to others. So it's sort of an external driver versus the internal driver, what we call intrinsic motivation. That's the one where all the power comes from. I do this because I love it. I do this whether anybody is watching or not. I do this, you know, whether I'm, I'm the best player or not. I do this because I love it. And I think when I work with young people, my, my job is early is to get them just to recognize that there are, you know, motivation comes from two sources, either outside or inside. And it's the the volume, you sort of speak, the, the volume of motivation can impact um, your ability to be successful, to be uh, consistent in your sport. So I think that's where I start. But then obviously, you know, there are so many facets of motivation. I, I, I could talk for hours on motivation, but it is the gas in the engine that makes everything go.
3: Kevin, okay, well, we just had Pat Malloy on for a segment and his closing remarks on Mason McTavish were, this is a very driven player. And to, to me, that really matters. As a scout, one of the biggest things we look for in terms of mental makeup is off ice drive. And the reason we look for it is because it is what is when you look back on drafts, the players that basically went above our expectations are always the most driven players because they're the ones that seem the most able to learn and adapt over the years to get to the NHL. Can you talk about the significance of drive and how it plays a role in, in not only motivational process, but the learning process.
10: Well, I think motivation is like I said, it is the driver. That's why I call it drive. If 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 you ever read any of my stuff, I always talk about drive, drive, drive. It is motivation, right? That's what I'm talking about. But I think you're on to something when you talk about their, their drive, their their drive to be able to stay the course, to do the hard things, and to never give up, right? There there's also this aspect of drive and motivation that you have to be careful about. And that is, you know, you can become perfectionistic in your motivation. You can become driven to the point that nothing is ever good enough, right? So now we're starting to stray into areas where that that high drive could actually have negative effects on your performance, right? And that's one of the things I always try to get my guys to do is, you know, there there's this idea that there are right things and wrong things, good things and bad things. And I try to get away from that because there are so many situations where all these things play out that I can't ever say that this is actually good or bad. It's, it's really comes down to, is it working for you or is it working against you? Right? So in a situation where somebody who's driven and, and they, they, they want to achieve, they want to, you know, to reach their goals, but because they're so driven that they never give themselves a break. They never let off the gas. If they ever stumble or if they ever struggle, then they push even harder, right? And and we know that sometimes you've got to let off the gas, right? Sometimes you've got to back off a little bit. So that motivation, it has to be in context with the situation. It has to be in context with sort of the overall sort of goals, right? The purpose of where I'm trying to go with this. But I love drive. Drive is a great indicator of of how far somebody can go, but it can also be a red flag if I see that their drive is actually creating pressure, unnecessary pressure. Uh, and, and in my book, I talk a lot about undermotivated players and over-motivated players. There's actually pros and cons to both, right? Under-mo- un- under-motivated have a tendency to be sort of chill and more relaxed in pressure situations. They know they've got the skill and the ability to, to see it through, so they're not so tense. Over-motivated, sometimes they'll squeeze the stick and they, and they really get in their own heads when, when, you know, push comes to shove. So there's a lot to this, and I suspect that we'll sort of break out this idea of motivation in areas uh, you know when we talk further into uh the book but motivation i think for you guys it's really what are they doing what are they doing you know you can't tell me you're motivated you have to show me you're motivated and that goes back to what we talked about last week uh it's really all in behavior it's not about your words it's about your actions
1: yeah kevin I'm glad that you brought that up, the tendencies for over or under motivated players, because as I'm reading, as I'm listening to both of you and I'm reading through like the bullet points of over motivated um, and under motivated, it certainly applies in many cases to both Brad and I, you know, I think at times, Brad can speak to this as well. We can be a little bit obsessive about what we do and I've as I'm reading through this, I like well um, with failure, blame self for not working hard enough. Responds to mistakes by overanalyzing, being over overtly critical. I guess when you're like so like passionate about something that you know maybe from our perspective that we can kind of go too far in being so motivated to do the best thing and not being able to take a break and stand back, not just a break for a minute or two, but actually take a break for a while, like maybe weeks or a yeah. month and being able to like yeah. step back and reassess what you're actually doing.
10: Yeah. Well, I think it's funny. I, I, you know, some, I've got some friends that um, that are sports psychologists that surf. And so, you know, in, when you're surfing, you can't force it, right. The waves either there for you and you ride it or it's not, um, sometimes I just wish that, you know, folks could take that surfer mentality is it's just chill, right? Relax. Um, because too much of, of a good thing is too much, right? It, it actually, it's, it ends up being a bad thing. And again, I think don't don't get caught up in the good, bad. Don't get caught in the right, wrong. Get focused on is it working for me or not, Right, And then the only way you know that is you have to be able to check in with yourself. Right, You have to be self-aware. You have to know who you are, what makes you tick, the things that make you go, the things that make you struggle. If you have an understanding of that, then you can, in any situation, you can recognize that, hey, this, this external motivation is really working for me right now. But what if it went away? What if it went away? Does that mean that everything just grinds to a halt? That's what I worry about young people, Right. Everything's coming from the outside. Would young people play hockey if they didn't get recognized, if they didn't get kudos, if they didn't get a dollar for every goal, right? I don't know. I, I don't know. But I certainly don't want to set up a situation where that's, you know, something that would come up. You know, the thing is, the thing about this game hockey, the, the reason I know that it is it is a it's a different game than a lot that, that are out there is that men's league, right? I see guys driving to the rink their game doesn't start till 1230 or 1am and they got to work the next day, but they're out there playing because they love this. That is internal motivation. That's intrinsic motivation. That's doing it because I love it. Um, And so if that passion isn't there, if that, internal drive isn't there it's hard to sort of surround them with those other things but those other things work too right they yeah, do let's, absolutely let's be honest yeah Yeah.
1: well uh once again thank you very much for coming on our show we really appreciate great insight from your book thank you dr willis uh, this has been another episode of hockey prospect radio on sirius xm nhl network radio powered by Instat Hockey and Junior Prospect Hockey League and Fractal Hockey Consulting and Outside Edge Player Development. You can listen to the show on your favorite podcast network or YouTube and follow us on Twitter at HP Radio and HockeyProspectRadio.com. Thank you to all our guests, and we will see you at the rink.
4: Every play, every stat, every breakdown, on their own, they're essential, but all together, they're undeniable